Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we just began this book a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to continue to study this very dense first chapter, and especially first couple of paragraphs. Last week, if you were here, I preached a very punchy sermon on the doctrine of predestination. And I got to hear back from our life groups that then take the sermon and discuss it amongst themselves, that there were some, I guess we would say, very animated conversations about predestination in our life groups. As far as I can tell, nobody was hurt bodily in those conversations, but they were animated. People get up in arms about this doctrine. People disagree about this doctrine. This is a hard and difficult doctrine, and we don't interpret it the same way within the church. If you're new to Columbia Presbyterian Church, you might not know that even though we are a Presbyterian church, even though we are PCA, we're actually made up in our congregation of all different denominational and theological backgrounds. We come from all different stripes when we come and join uh, this church. In fact, when we do a members class, I like to ask those who are sitting there who came from a Presbyterian or Reformed background. And I would say that half to two-thirds of the people in our new members class have not. So if you don't have that background, if you didn't grow up PCA or Presbyterian or Reformed, you're actually in the majority here in the congregation of a Presbyterian church. And I think our church is so much better for that. I love that diversity. I love the different perspectives that we bring to the table when we read our Bibles. Now, The only way this is going to work, the only way we can pull together different denominations, different theologies under one roof with any kind of sanity is if we agree to a couple of ground rules amongst ourselves. Number one, we major on the majors. If you join this church, I believe that you believe this, that we major on the majors. If you bank your life on the Apostles' Creed, but you think predestination and infant baptism are suspect doctrines, you and I are going to get along just fine. We can do that all day long. We can preach the gospel all day long from that perspective. We're going to do just fine. I'm going to pray for your conversion, but we're going to be okay. That's fine. We can do that. Number two, we have got to teach the Bible faithfully. I think you can get so caught up with theological unity that you begin to skimp on difficult passages, right? We've got all different backgrounds, so we get neck deep in a chapter on predestination. Let's kind of rush our way through Ephesians 1 to get to the stuff that we can all agree on. I don't think that's going to fly. We're going to dig into Ephesians 1. And we may interpret it differently, we may study it and come to a different conclusion, but woe to this church that skimps on difficult passages. That's not going to fly here, we're going to dig into a passage like Ephesians 1. But finally, number three, Ephesians 4 actually tells us that the goal of a church studying its Bible together. This is why we do this. This is why we're here. This is why we're bent over open Bibles together is Ephesians 4.16 that we are going to be built up in love. We're going to speak truth and love to one another. We're going to learn our Bibles better 
so that we as a church are built up in love. If that's not happening, something's amiss. Something's wrong with the way we're preaching and teaching our Bibles because we already know the goal that's at hand. We've heard it famously put before, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity, and that's how we approach our Bibles. So with that in mind, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 11. We're revisiting a portion of what we talked about last week. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we sit in the presence of one who works all things to the counsel of his will. Not chiefly our will, not chiefly our desire, not chiefly our plan for our own lives and our family and our city and the world. We are guests in foreign territory of a God who works all things to the counsel of his own will. I pray that we would stop our mouths and open our ears and hear from this God This morning, from your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, I kind of ended a sermon on predestination by promising that we need to answer a critical question, and that is, is predestination an evangelism killer? It's got that reputation. If God has ordained everything, why do we as human beings need to do anything And that is the question we're going to answer in our application. But before we do that, before we get to the outworking of the mystery of God's will, we've got to say a few things about this will itself. Our verses are packed with references to the fact that God indeed has a plan for the world. If you've been paying attention in these two paragraphs, you're getting the repetition that God has a plan for the universe. He didn't set it in motion and then take a step back and wonder what would become of it. When God created the world, he had a plan in mind. Let me prove it to you. Verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 9 again, his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time. Verse 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. Do you see this repetition? Plan, purpose, will, counsel, God is going to do what God is going to do. The universe snaps to attention and follows the plan that God has prepared for it. 
And the things that loom large to us, the things that we feel under-resourced for, the things that we are afraid of, they do not loom large to God. Presidents, kings, nations, armies, millennials, they are but single raindrops in the hurricane of God's purposes. God is going to do what God is going to do. Now with that in mind, let's say two things about what Paul calls in verse 5, the mystery of his will. Let's say two things about the mystery of God's will. The first thing that Paul wants to tell us about this mystery is that God is happy to share his will with us. It makes God happy to take what has been a mystery and reveal it to us so that everybody in this room can know what the will of God is. Now look at verse 9. My ESV says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to, and then my ESV translates the word purpose, according to his purpose. He makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Now, I think a better choice of translation for that word purpose is actually the word pleasure, as in making known to us the mystery of his will according to his pleasure. That's the same word that's in a very similar passage in Matthew 11, verse 26. Jesus is saying almost the same thing that Paul is saying in a different way. He says to God, You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to to infants. Yes, Father, for this was, and here's that word, well-pleasing in your sight. So both verses, parallel verses, are saying the same thing. God is happy when he shares, when he reveals his will to us. Now let me ask you an honest question. When's the last time you were cornered by a Calvinist at a dinner party and you walked away from that encounter and described it as happy? That was a good experience. I'm glad I sat next to that person. Okay, maybe that's never happened. And maybe we go to different dinner parties. I want everybody in this room to do something for me. I want us all to take two giant steps back from the caricature of the hyper-Calvinist who is beating us over the head with the Institutes. All right, everybody take two steps back slowly. Don't make eye contact. Don't mention Charles Finney. Just just back away. And now that you have this newfound space and fresh air, I want us all to take two giant steps towards Ephesians 1. Get around the middle man, go right to the passage itself, and understand what God is telling us through the Apostle Paul. To reveal God's plan for the fullness of time, it delights God. It gives God pleasure. 
And if it makes God happy to share his will with us, it should make us happy to receive and hear and understand his will. There's this incredible passage in the upper room discourse where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's talking about God's will and he says there's an important shift that has happened in our relationship. This is what he says in John 15, 15 and 16. He says, no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now, why does Jesus make a transition from servant to friend with respect to his disciples, he says this, I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Isn't that tremendous? There, there was a way to think of ourselves as mere servants in the kingdom of God because we heard instructions and we did what we were told. But Jesus says actually a shift has happened in which everything I hear from my father, his mysterious will, the reason he has created the cosmos, I've now shared that with you. I've made it known to you. I've given you my Holy Spirit so that these truths are dear to your heart. And when I do that, I prove to you, you are not a mere servant. You're not a mere employee. I have made you my friend. All that I have, I've shared with you. God is happy to share it. We as believers are happy to receive it. That's the first thing we need to understand about the mystery of God's will. The second one, very briefly, is God's hidden, now revealed will is to unify creation around Jesus. This is what he says very plainly in verse 10. This is the plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, if the unification of the cosmos in Jesus sounds dense, it is, but fear not. Paul is going to spend the rest of the book of Ephesians unpacking what we mean by this unification under all things in Jesus. He's going to say, to the chagrin of powers and principalities that God sent his son Jesus to redeem the elect, to build his church, to seal her with the Holy Spirit, to present her as the manifold wisdom of God to those in the heavenly places, and to hold her as a bride without spot or wrinkle. The rest of our time in Ephesians is going to be unpacking the truth that this mystery that's now God's pleasure to share with us is that he will unify all things through his son Jesus. That's our pleasure to hear and understand. But the question we have before us, once we get access to the mystery of God's will. Once we understand that he's happy to share it, once we understand that it is centering all things around his son, Jesus, we want to know what that means for us. You hear so much about the sovereignty of God, you're very curious about the activity of human beings. 
Is predestination an evangelism killer? Once we hear that God has elected, preordained, chosen before the foundations of the world and then sets about doing what he's going to do and nothing can undermine his purposes, doesn't that just kind of freeze us in our tracks so that there's nothing left for us to do? We're only kind of getting in the way of God's purposes. That's why we have the reputation, the frozen chosen, right? You're chosen by God, and so you're frozen in human inactivity. You trust so much in sovereignty, you don't do anything about it. Well, here's the sad, twisted irony about that reputation. It is God's ordaining and revealing of his plan that should wake up the mission of God and not weaken it. To know what God's plan is, to have that revealed to us in his pleasure, to know where the entire universe is headed, that should actually excite us and motivate us and charge us towards his mission instead of doing the inverse, which it does in some circles, and that is to deaden and weaken the role we have to play in God's sovereign election of those who will believe. Now, there is no illustration, human illustration, that comes close to God's plan and his sovereignty. But let me take a stab at something I heard the other day that that I see the parallel to this in. I was with a dad who, his daughter is dating someone very seriously. It looks like it's headed towards marriage. And so he had his first one-on-one sit-down with the serious boyfriend. And as a father of a daughter, I was kind of sitting up and listening. How how do you, as a man, sitting with another man who's dating your daughter, instill the joy and the fear of God in the man sitting in front of you? you? How do you do that in a winsome way where he's enticed and terrified at the same time for what's in store for dating your daughter? Well, this was beautiful. This dad kind of leans in with this young man and he says, look, I want to let you in on what I've been doing my entire life. I have one aim for my daughter. I have one desire for her. And it's a desire I have prayed for. It's a desire I teach her about. It's a desire I have laughed over and wept over. And that is my daughter would see and know and love and be like Jesus. That's all I want. That's my highest aim for her. And now that you're in her life, I believe God's calling you to join me in this plan for her. Would you help me do that? Would you help me make my daughter look more like Jesus? Wow. That's beautiful. That's dense. That's glorious. That's weighty. That's enticing. You want to be a part of something like that. There's no parallel to the sovereignty of God. But when God in Ephesians 1 opens up his plan for the universe and he's delighted to share it with us, he's not the father-in-law who needs our help to get something accomplished. He's the heavenly father who is happy to reveal his will and invite his children to be a part of that same thing. We get to participate with God in his goal, his desire for the universe. Ephesus got this. 
the church of Ephesus to whom Paul writes this letter, they got this. Now think about this. Ephesians 1 is one of the densest descriptions of predestination we have in our Bibles. This is top shelf stuff. In fact, if you came to me and said, I don't know anything about this doctrine, what books of the Bible should I read? Ephesians is right up there with Psalms and Daniel and Isaiah and Jesus in the Gospels and Acts and Romans and Revelation, among all of those things. I might even put Ephesians chapter 1 in your hands first before all those others to say, this is what you need to read to understand the doctrine of predestination. And here it lands on this church. This is a Bible-believing church in Ephesus, and they receive this letter that contains the doctrine of predestination, and yet the church in Ephesus is the disciple-making, church-planting church in the New Testament. You've got the doctrine of predestination, and you've got the most active evangelistic church in the New Testament, and they are one and the same. Think about the scenes from the book of Acts. You've got demon-possessed, magic-practicing, sex-crazed citizens from Ephesus who are coming to faith in droves in this town. You've got an idol-making industry that is complaining that they are losing customers to the church in Ephesus. You've got church plants of Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They are all coming out of the church plant in Ephesus. And you've got the Apostle Paul who asked for prayer in Ephesians 6.19, Lord After I've said all of this about predestination, would you please make me a bold evangelist? Give me courage when I open my mouth to speak the gospel. If that's what a Calvinist looks like, Lord, make us card-carrying, tulip-wearing Calvinists. Make us half the Calvinists that the members of the church in Ephesus were. There is no distinction, there is no breakdown between predestination and evangelism and missions and church planting. It is because we have this mystery of God now revealed. That God has put his son at the center and he will unite all things to him in the gospel. It is because he has displayed this to us that we now understand God is not winging it when it comes to uniting all things to himself in heaven and on earth. God is not in his throne room hoping for conversions and worried that the church is always one generation from extinction. God is not speculating that there will be in heaven some from every tribe and tongue and nation and when we show up in heaven, he will not say what we say at church picnics, oh shucks, I wish there was a better turnout. He is not going to say that because the book of Revelation is not God's best educated guess. And Ephesians 1 is not a page ripped from God's diary of all the things he hopes will happen in the cosmos. 
I tell you, God has ordained these things and they will come to pass. The doctrine of predestination does not kill evangelism. It sets the whole thing on fire. Our mission is not fueled by our passion, our desires, our gifts, our time, our money. It is fueled according to God in Ephesians 1 by his love and by his will. And the reason we send missionaries to far-flung corners of the earth, the reason we stumble through outreach ministries in Colombia, the reason you and I fumble at the water cooler to talk about Jesus to another person is because all of these things are beautiful adornments on the doctrine of the mysterious will of God now revealed to the saints. What else Is there? What else is worth giving our lives for but to be snapped up into an eternal victory that will come to pass on that great day when God unites all things to himself through his Son in heaven and on earth? Let's pray together. When it comes to the sovereignty of God in the election before the foundations of the world of the saints who are now recorded in the book of life for all time, we are strangers and guests and servants who have been made friends. You reveal your will to us. You invite us to participate in that will. And now we are snapped up in this great, victory that we will celebrate for all eternity, that you will do what you will do. Glory, glory, glory be to God in heaven. We say in Jesus' name, amen.